3: I'd rather risk a bullet in my head
1: than to go to prison.
4: Curtis St Jackson.
5: And I'm Charlie Webster.
4: And this is Surviving El Chapo. It's when she brought down the
3: drug war. The federal agents decide to move us from the office into these bulletproof trucks. I get a call, it's a musical One of the top lieutenants, and he's like, you know, I need to talk to you. It's gonna be important. They got, like, 80 or 100 men ready to come get you and your brother. But we're going to leave that decision for you and your brother because there's a chance that you might not make it out alive. I'm going to ask you a question, and I just want you to tell me, yes or no.
4: Our lives are filled with thousands of choices that we have to make, split-second decisions that change the directions of our lives but sometimes you don't want to choose. Peter and Jay were looking at their lives being taken away no matter what. Life in prison or a gunshot to the head. In that moment, through the crackle in the phone line speaking to the cartel's top Lieutenant Musico, Jay decided that being taken to prison by the US Marshals was a fate scarier than death. Instead, they risked the potential bloodbath of a cartel battle. So, I'm
3: gonna ask you a question. Do you
2: green-light
3: for us to go get you? Yes. What's the concept? I think you're making the right decision. But I want you to know something. You see those federal agents? They're no different than you and me they're ready to die. They're not going to go out alone. When we come, just know they're going to try to kill you first. So if you could get one of their guns or something, hide, run, do whatever you can. Do it. That was really hard for me to take. I'm sitting right next to them. They have guns with them. He just reminded me, like, this ain't America. They will tell you. And I said, I understand. You know, I'm being really, like, just easy with my words, not saying too much. And then he said, I want you to know something. You're my friend. He as a man. I respect you and your brother. I admire you. I love you, man. I have came to love you. If anything happens, I just want you to know that you have everyone's here's respect. And don't worry about your family. They're going to be OK. That made me get really emotional. He just listened to me be emotional. I literally sat there and cried. And my brother, Peter, just kind of just tapped me. He didn't know what was going on, so I said to Musico, listen, you know, I have a couple of debts that I want to pay. He said, look at you. You're in a life-and-death situation. worried about someone else. You're about your suffering. I just don't want nothing to happen to my family. Don't worry. I'll give you my word that nothing's going to happen to your family. We'll do whatever we have to do. His words meant a lot to me. At that time, I was taking that the bosses were saying that they admired and respected me. That was a big deal to me. And we said our goodbyes. I hung up the phone. That was going to be the last call I get. And I just whispered to my brothers, they're going to come get us there's a chance that these dudes ain't going to be happy. He understood. I remember him just like, look at me. It was just like, damn. I know what he meant, by like, this is what our life has become. This is how our life ends. I'm just thinking of your life as a whole, and it started kind of like what is my life? This is going to be my life? I sold a bunch of drugs and I died in a shootout. Oh, wow, he was a great drug dealer. He was a man of his word. I leave my kids without a father. You know, my wife without a husband. And still, that at that time, I was like, I'm responsible. This is what we chose. And everyone, well, at that time, I think, people in that life, we, we decide, oh, it's for the money. And you just start digging yourself into this ditch deeper and deeper, and it's for the money, it's for the money, it's for the money. By that time, I don't think me and my brother even talked about profit. Yes, it was different for us. It was, yeah, I could buy anything I wanted, but everything I wanted, I couldn't buy with money. What fulfilled me, I think, was finally having, like, a family and I think maturing, seeing what was, like, all those other moments where you were, like, faced with life and death, I think you start realizing, wow, that money wasn't doing nothing for me. Them houses, them cars. At that time, we're, what, we're 25 years old? Believe it or not, I used to think I was old. I had friends pass away when they were 17, 18, 19. No one ever lasts that long. Either you go to jail, you're gonna die. We drove around for a little while. They made a stop at a parking lot. Some of the agents got off, and they met up with other agents, other people, and I could see them. Kind of like arguing, maybe? You know, hands throwing up in the air and stuff. There's probably 16 total. There's like four or five uh, vehicles, Suburbans. And they jump in back in the car, and when they jump back in the car, I knew something wasn't right because they jump back in the car, they kind of said something, I don't know what they said. And I just heard all the clicks of their guns. my heart, probably skipped a beat. And I'm sitting down and one of the agents has, he has his AR-50, he's putting it around the chamber, but he has his handgun under his leg and it's cocked. And he has it under his leg right here on my left side. And I'm like, wow. We end up driving. We leave there. We follow the other vehicles there, of the agents or whoever the, the men were that they met with. But they they were like kind of well dressed, and uh, we follow them. And we start driving two roads I knew. To me, it's, we're heading back to the airport. I see that there's vehicles parked. Like there's vehicles stopped. I see that there's two young guys in. Uh, like utility vests and they have AKs. And they're standing in the middle of the street. And he sees he sees them he they're holding their gun. And he calls them. I'm like, come here. They're waving their hand. And he tells them, like, churn. And they easily turned in, and I could feel their tension. I could just feel it. And as they're researching, I, I'm able to see to my right, there's like probably 80 armed men. Everyone holding AK's rocket launcher. And they ease the trucks up into the street. And one of the agents says, don't make a move. Around all the vehicles, and I'm like, like frightened, fear. I can't even explain. We just stop. He just says, "Don't move," and we stop. And they're just like sitting still, all the vehicles, and all the army men. They come. They start trying to poke in, and they're like telling him like, just you know, calm, just calm. All young kids, they have to be, most of them 20 and under probably. Some of them could barely even carry the gun. And I did start looking around, I looked and under this like restaurant canopy, I see that there's two guys standing there and there's a three or four like cigars standing in front of them. I'm on the driver's side. He looks like a kid carrying an AK. He turns back, he puts on his back, and he tells the guy something. I could see him moving his mouth, and he has a paper in his hand. He runs up to the truck, and he says like this. He nods, like, points at it, like, here. I guess they were asking him, we were in that truck. He opens the door. The Ferraris don't move. He said, don't move. We're going to do this the right way. And he tells them. You guys in Spanish and, and he's cursing like one false move. We all going to hell. The guys just sit there. The guy comes and he looks looks at me. He's holding a paper I can't see. And when he churns is our wanted picture. And he goes like this so his thumbs, see, thumbs like, up. Yeah. He comes like Let's go. To you and Pete. So I I have the phone in my hand. Peter jumps off and I'm gonna start walking away. And I said, hold on one second. And I come back to the door. He's like, hold on, like, like what are you doing? And I'm like, hold on. The man that was in charge. He's in the front seat. I said, I'm not gonna need your phone anymore. And I said, I'm gonna keep my word. I'm gonna make sure I pay you something. And he was like, yes, sir. And I reached over and I shook his hand. And I shook their hand. I shook all five guys that were there, I shook their hand.
5: Why did you do that?
3: To me, I was taking responsibility for putting myself in this situation. I put their life at risk. They were at home, and they get the call, like, we have these fugitives from the U.S., and they come, and next thing you know now, their life's at risk because they're doing your job. And it was my way of representing who I was. Don't worry. I'm going to take care of you guys. I shook their hand. out of respect to them. It wasn't me trying to be something I wasn't. It was me just being myself. The businessman that I was, the man that I was, like the person I was, right? Still being nice in the situation that still having respect for them in a way. And I tapped on the see. They closed the door, the guy stood there. My brother was in front of me. We walked up to the stoop where the two men were standing there and they have man bags or man purses, we call them. One of them has a a AK hanging on his shoulder. You know, like they're the ones in charge. One of them reaches out. He was a lieutenant for that organization. And then the other guy was mentor.
5: Nemesio Eseguero Cervantes, known as El Mencho, or just Mencho, was a high-ranking member of the Millenio cartel. Milenio was a part of the Sinaloa Federation, and they fought side-by-side side against the Federation's main rivals, Los Zetas, in the cartel war. Mencho's boss at Millenio was El Lobo Valencia. When El Lobo was captured by the Mexican authorities, he was extradited to the U.S. to serve 25 years in a federal prison. Millenio fractured, and Mencho started the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, known as CJNG. Many thought Mencho had handed Al Lobo to the Federales, so he could lead his own cartel. Whatever the reason, it worked. CJNG is now considered the most dangerous criminal organization in Mexico. And Mencho himself is one of the most wanted men in the world, with a $10 million bounty on his head. And if you've ever visited or are in Los Angeles, you might have even seen Mencho's face on a few DEA billboards around the place. There's even one near Dodgers Stadium.
3: Hey, Mencho. Pleasure to finally meet you. You guys are good? Yeah. But hey, you know, you had a couple... People need to talk to you. They handed us like two or three phones. One of them was the the boss at the time. His name was Lobo Valencia. He was the head of the Millennial Carta. Was part of the federation, federation. Just a smaller group. Got on the phone kind of quick, thank you. I talked to Vicente Sambada on the other phone.
5: Vicente Zambada is Mayo Zambada's eldest son. He was one of the most senior members of the cartel, and answered directly to the bosses, Chapo, Mayo and Arturo Beltran. Vicente handled shipments across South America. He coordinated corruption with a budget of $1 million per month, which he used to pay bribes, and he also manipulated people for his father. Vicente was eventually arrested in 2009 and he pled guilty to using private planes, submarines, and speedboats to traffic over a billion dollars worth of cocaine and heroin.
3: They didn't have nice things to say, put it that way. What did they say? First, of course, was are you okay? And then it's like, what the fuck are you doing there? And it's a weird way because to Vicente, he's a uh, he was like younger than his father. So he has like that Kulia slang. So every other word was like, you dumb motherfucker, like. And I said, come on, man, I had a long day. Let's work this out later, yeah? And he's like, listen, you have a bunch of people roughed up right here. Like you, you need to come and, and take care of this soon. I'm like, let me get home and we'll get to that. It's weird because my relationship with them wasn't what people expect. It was a, a friendly relationship. No matter what, it was a friendly relationship, and they they treated me kind of like family, almost like. It was that family, like kind of like, they were gonna talk shit in a nice way. Like it's still in their way, but they were still like,
5: like family can.
3: Yeah. Manch just like, I have orders. Our job is to make sure we get you back home safe.
5: So at this point, you're still not safe?
3: Yeah, so he said, so the U.S. Marshals are coming. You see these two guys? They bring them. They have AKs. They're too dark. One of them's chubby. In their 20s, guys, and said, these guys are the guys we're going to give for them. They're going to go with them.
5: The U.S. Marshals were only minutes away, and the Federalists had to give them something. So they quickly got two random guys to pretend to be Jay and Pete and put them in a car to be delivered to the U.S. government. The federales were embarrassed, but giving up the wrong people was better than admitting they had to let the real fugitives go. And so they, they were put in the cars that you'd just been in, the bulletproof cars, with the federales, mm-hmm. to drive to the U.S. Marshals.
3: To kind of like say, oh, we got the wrong guys. Oopsie. It's the switch, right? Yeah. yeah. That's common. It's a common practice. He was like, do they look like you? I said, hell no, these are ugly motherfuckers. Like, you know, I had to make a joke out of it. And they're like, I know. I felt bad. I was like, hold on. Are you guys okay?" He said, man, guess what? They gave us all a bunch of liquor so we could get drunk, so they could look like they were partying. They gave us some Coke. It's a good day. Mind you, it's 10, 11 in the morning. But they're about to be
5: sent into the lion's den.
3: No, I guess they knew they were going to get to like, these are the twins. They're going to be like, are you at your fucking mind? Like, these are fucking two dark Mexicans. Non-twins. Yeah, they're not twins. Nice. said, we're going to take care of you. Don't worry. They were smiling, happy. They're drunk and high. They went and jumped in the cars.
2: start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily
6: to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
8: we started talking about this incident drugs and uh, officials cover up
7: <laughs> you couldn't believe it
8: from iHeartPodcasts. it's
7: like the police knew who he was
3: I didn't even think twice They put me in another bulletproof car. With them, it felt a little bit better. And and I guess it was, like, one of the lieutenants I went with, it was one of the mentioned lieutenants. It was a driver and him, an older man. They asked me, where are you staying at? It's, it's a 35-minute, 40-minute drive. It's a six, seven-car caravan of sicarios and me I know there's a military checkpoint going into that part I'm like worried I said is there another way he said well what do you mean we're driving I said you know there's a military checkpoint oh don't worry about that don't worry about that and sure enough we're coming they waved to him they have their guns in their hands. I mean, rifles, like, literally. They waved, just, we were right past them. I was, like, shocked, because, that, like, the military, that doesn't really happen. I don't forget, it's a beautiful day. Here I am, like, having the shittiest day, and it looks so beautiful outside. They rolled up into the house and they all started getting off with their guns.
5: Val and Viv were anxiously waiting back at the house after the Federales had let them go free in the negotiations back at the police station. They had no idea if they'd ever see j again.
4: The back and forth that Valerie and I were going through on our own. No one's giving us any kind of any news of what's going on with them. I seen all the trucks and the guys and then they were armed and it was like, this is, you know.
3: It's weird because in one way it was like paradise and the other way it was like hell. We're in the most beautiful probably beaches of Mexico. There we are like living through the worst, one of the worst moments in our lives.
4: And I think that that's like really, I would say the, the epitome of what our lives were before that. That every happy moment, every beautiful moment in our lives, every memorable moment in our lives, was overshadowed by a bad moment. You get used to it, and then you just wait. And then you're like, okay, well, we'll get over this, and, you know, it'll pass tomorrow. You know, that's that time that I was telling you, Charlie, that you know, we live on these high moments because that's all I could live on, was the high moments that we were going through. And the low, low moments and these, the turmoil that we would always go through too, it was like, we'll pass through it. We'll get through it. And then you become like, you would get numb to it.
3: No, but if I could get rid of the cartel and our story would be a fairy tale. I come in, and Bob was, like, she was upstairs, I guess, getting her stuff. I was surprised why she was still even there. We walked in, and she was They a shocked because you see all these dudes coming in with guns, and just saw me, started crying, and we all cried. Then I introduced Val Yvi to Menjo. He was sitting there. He had his radio in his hand, and he's kind of sitting, like, really cocky, though. In the table like with his legs open and he has the radio here and he's playing with the switch with his gun in his hand. And he's like, yeah, don't worry, we're going to leave, you know. We have a, a federal police coming two escort us back to Guadalajara.
5: Did that change you after that?
3: Oh, for sure. It made me see what I could be facing. Kind of like, it was my reality for that time. And now I'm getting a glimpse of what could happen. I and mean, that wasn't a good feeling. That was not something that I liked.
5: What happened to the US Marshals and the two guys that were put in your replacement?
3: Well, later on, I did find out they did make it.
5: Did you um, ever give that guy his money? I did. <laughs> he kind of
2: looked like.
3: I did. Um, we ended up giving him like $2.5 million. Everyone who had anything to do with it. Got it, chunk.
5: Was 2.5 million a lot of money to you at that point?
3: There's money that we consider to be the cost of doing business. To us, is overhead. The company can't function without the CEOs who are micromanaging like, everything. So, you I mean, take it as loss. It was what it was. I mean, you prepare for those things. We were at the top, right? And I like to say the upper tons of the drug cartels. And I was sitting at the table with him. I wasn't just another person. And I would say that at that time I was proud. That's what I did. And when we just started to change our life, it, it was all those moments. Things are getting taken for me. Things that I'm not willing to give. I'm willing to lose money. I'm not willing to give up. What I sacrificed so much for was that in all these years, all these things were changing me. Not just that I was going through hardships that I was maturing, I was under starting to understand like the destruction and everything that I was doing to me and to the family and and understanding like my position and how I got there. And starting to understand that what we were doing wasn't the right thing to do. Like and we could sit there all the time and say, Oh yeah, we're I don't do something like I'm proud of. I don't hurt anyone. I don't kill anyone. I'm, but that didn't matter. It did make me feel a little bit guilty, you know? Like, I did feel at times like I was no different because I was actually, I felt like I was participating. Like Now I'm there with them, and I used to think, well, before I wasn't it, I remember one day thinking I was because I was still doing this in Chicago. And I think that goes back to how America perceives the drug trade. I was who I was because of the United States, not because of Mexico. Some way, somehow, I guess we all have a, a part in what's fueling these the violence and how the business works, and I guess that's what I'm here explaining. How the business works, how it trickles down. A lot of it's politics. It's not just the business anymore. And I had to see that. I had to live that for it to affect me that way. You know how every time I, do, I, had to like go see them or be in those situations where I see people tied up or, or even be you know around a bunch of armed men making sure that oh you're safe to get from point A to point B. I used to be like this thing for me. I know this ain't in a movie. This is not making me feel any better at all. You know, I remember having a conversation with uh, a friend of ours. When Arturo made the choice with the Setas, he said, my brother just got killed last week. They tortured him and killed him. How do you feel? How do you feel about that? he just be like, well, I heard that I don't have my brother. I just, I don't have a say. I just have to fall in line.
5: The ongoing war between Sinaloa and Los Setas has killed more than double the amount of civilians than died in the entire Middle Eastern conflict since 2007. The war has been infamously brutal. Beheadings, hangings, and indiscriminate murder were a hallmark. Everyone was a target, including children. There were no limits to the evil. People were boiled, killed with acid, cooked in ovens, and even fed alive to crocodiles. But it was the fracture within the Sinaloa cartel that started to cause problems for Jay and Pete. Their adopted cartel family was starting to fall apart. Rumors were swirling that Beltran was teaming up with the enemy, Los Cetas, betraying his long-term friend and founding partner. At the same time, Chapo gave Beltran's brother, Alfredo, up to the Mexican authorities Chapo saw Alfredo as a liability, and as a bonus, he was able to negotiate a deal for the release of his son from prison. The Chapo Beltran breakup meant carnage was about to follow for everyone involved.
3: We're being put in a tough situation, where well, we're gonna have to like really choose a side of the cartel that we're gonna be loyal to, and by doing that, you're gonna create a whole enemy all those moments lead up to those that big decision to say, I got to stop this like I'm tired of that you know mm-hmm. hurting the people you love like having them live in fear and I lived in and, fear and
4: unselfishly that's when Peter asked me like really, I mean we've been married a while already and he asked me if I want to leave like if this is that's the life that I want to live with him.
3: I didn't let her answer. He
4: didn't let me answer. Obviously, I knew what I wanted. I mean, because if I didn't know what I wanted, I would have left a long time ago. I have had millions of reasons to leave, and not because he wasn't a good husband to me, not because he was a, a perfect husband to me, but all the signs were there. They were, like, flashing in my face. I knew what I wanted, but I I just listened to him very patiently and. Gave him my answer, and you know I stopped taking my birth control pills, and then I, I was like pregnant. So everything that I did want that day, everything that when we were sitting there and, and um, handcuffed together, and everything that I regret, I feel like I was I was given that chance. I felt like my decision was was well worth it. And I feel like Peter's every decision that he made since he was 17 years old, that I suffer the consequences till today. A good husband maybe would be different in somebody else's eyes, but to me, that's all that matters. That he's a great husband to me, a good husband.
3: It was a guilt that I carried carried with me and it was hazardous to me, to her, to our future, to our marriage, to everything, and I had to like do something about it.
6: This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in LA. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
8: they started talking about this incident, drugs and uh, officials cover-up.
7: <laughs> you couldn't believe it.
8: From iHeart Podcasts. It's
7: like the police knew who he was before they got here.
8: A story about money,
6: power and corruption.
3: There was a time where I, I mean, my brother did think that I could have easily became one of them.
5: Was it kind of surreal because as a surreal. kid, you, as a kid, you probably knew who Chappell was, right? Yeah. When you were younger, so just to, maybe, and yeah. then you were like, oh, hang on, I'm, these, I am like that. These
3: are my idols. Yeah. No question, they're my idols. That once I was there, I did think like, wow, I'm idolizing men. They're no different. I mean, no different. They're men. They're like me. They breathe. They they're nothing special.
5: Did you see yourself as like a drug lord kingpin? Because that's how they always get described.
3: I didn't see myself as a... I never see myself. I never see myself as the way I'm talking about myself now. But it was a just everything building up since I guess our younger days, since we were kids. And there's so many... All these traumatic experiences that happen, and I know firsthand what they say about that life, about the life of selling drugs leads to prison or death, sometimes both. And I kind of knew that something was on the horizon, like the tensions, the the talking about this and talking about that. And around that time, they had set certain rules. They wanted to keep the price of a kilo, they wanted to keep the price of drugs at a certain price. They wanted to keep it at a certain number. For instance, in the beginning, a kilo of cocaine, you could buy a kilo of cocaine in Mexico City for $8,000. In Culiacán, it would cost you $8,900, $9,000. So as you're moving north, the kilo becomes more expensive, even in Mexico, and same for the States. And the war that was happening against the set that was costing a lot of money. And, you know, we sat down, they said, it doesn't make any sense. Wars are expensive, and I mean really expensive. Just so people don't realize this. My organization month, my overhead was $500,000 a month.
5: What? Your overhead was half a million?
3: Half a million dollars.
5: A month. So even to break even, you had to...
3: <laughs> Make $500,000.
5: Was that a lot of money? I see that as a lot of money. Did you see that as a lot of money at the time? 500000
3: Well, no. And to me, it wasn't a lot of money. When it came to investing back and, and making sure that our product was safe and that we were in the best case scenario, if I walked away with, you know, 10% of a profit, then to me, it was worth it. 500,000 were anywhere from 5 to 10% of our profits. To me, it's like, I always looked at what I was making. Even if it took 30% of what I was making, of oh, whatever. When it came to our organization and, and our infrastructure, that we did never, ever took a shortcut. Like, if I was going to buy semi-trucks, I'd be like, get me five brand new semi-trucks. And we're paying cash. Whatever the case it was, it was not going to be, you know, I was not going to take a shortcut. I was going to make sure that we had the best equipment and the best workers and everyone got paid well so that no one had to actually ever kind of betray us or think differently.
5: So the war was brewing almost. It hadn't happened, yes, but you knew um, it was happening. I, at
3: that time, yes. What
2: okay, were right. your
5: choices at that time?
3: My choice was to keep going.
5: Yeah. And pick a side? And pick a side. You knew that you would inevitably have to pick a side?
3: Yes, for sure. I, I knew that was coming.
5: And you couldn't go back to Chicago? No, I,
3: I'm a fugitive. I'm wanted to America. So, so you know, you we sure? thought about going to another country. Did you? Yes, yeah, for sure, we contemplated that, you know, a few times. Like, Did you think about where? of a country, working in Costa Rica. Or... We were pushing Spain at that time. You know, getting there wasn't a problem, it's just, in Mexico, I was comfortable. You know, we have a background, I could say, this is what we do, and you have that ability to, like, maneuver and kind of blend in a little bit. I know the language, I know the culture, then, by that time, I was protected, right? I already had escaped from being captured that one time. I didn't want to go to another country and have to deal with that. But I always said, like, I'm simple. I could, I'd could, rather be locked in a house, a nice house, right, than locked in prison. But that came with a price. It meant that I was going to have to break away from my family my wife was going to have to break away from her immediate family because I was not going to take a chance for the feds to find out that I'm in a country where they could just go out and be like hey surprise, I'm here yes,
5: yeah, so they could easily get you in Spain because you weren't, you weren't protected in Spain yeah, I wasn't protected in
7: Spain yeah.
3: or in one of those countries, Canada whatever the case is that wasn't going to solve what I wanted to do that wasn't going to solve what was in my heart for my family, you know, like a normal life. And it was really getting to me, I, you know, my son was born, my son would always want to be with me and he loved playing with cars and he just say, I got caught up on the phone or something, he would start playing with my workers, with my security. And there they are holding a rifle in the and a back I was in the Pushing bush. a car back yeah, and like, forth, mm, a toy that, car back and forth with yeah. a massive
5: rifle.
3: That wasn't what I wanted for my kids. Like, I did that. Me running was wasn't gonna take away from the hurt and the wrong I was actually doing to my family. I saw my son like, he has no idea, you know, a year old. I saw like that that I thought about my life. How you got accustomed to certain things. I used to think about me that's what my family oh you're not going to do this you could learn you could be good at it but you're not going to do this and that's the first thing I did so there was options and I did believe that at that time I started going with this notion that I always said like yeah all good things are difficult all those good things are going to take some sacrifice the easy shit oh it's easy Don't go to work. It's easy to stay home. But that's not the right thing to do, right?
5: The impending cartel war meant that everyone was on high alert. And it wasn't just Pete and Jay who were at risk of being caught up in choosing a side. Val and Viv might have joined the twins willingly. But just like the twins themselves, their children would be born into a life they didn't choose. Jay and Val already had a one-year-old, and they had another on the way. Pete and Viv were pregnant for the first time.
3: I do recall options. Always thinking of options. And me and my brother did this a lot. He'll be like, this is what we need. And just, you know, in the business, we were always, I think what made us successful that like we were always looking for the next thing. We didn't settle. We didn't say, OK, let's enjoy it. I know I needed, like, some type of solution for what was coming. I remember my brother and me thinking, like, wow, by talking one time, like, it's going to get really rough. Both our wives are pregnant now. I remember, like, it's going to get rough. Like, "It's not, I don't think it's even safe for them to be here anymore. Like, us being scared, like, nervous to, like, tell them that while they're pregnant. They need our support. We're scared of telling them that. We didn't think that it was a good idea for them to be with us at the time. I got people in Colombia at the time, just in case we're doing business that I got to keep up with them. So I got people in Mexico City. I got people that work in Guadalajara. I got people in Culiacan. I got people in Juarez. I got people in Mexicali, LA, Chicago, Ohio, Detroit, New York, that I, you know, had to be responsible for on a daily basis. It takes a lot it would take a lot of work. So I have people with me. There's the people for that work from the organization. There's, there's like, then we have associates, right, that we're doing business. Like, somebody might be doing this for me, and you meet them, you're talking to them. So I have 20, 25 people every day on a daily basis. depending on some way, somehow, for even the smallest things. Like, right around that time, I would promise Val that I would, like, rub her feet every day before she went to bed. And sometimes I could be right there with her, but like we're not really talking. She's in my presence, but two different lives. I remember, um, through my feet and, you know, I'm getting phone calls. I had just lost $10 million in New York that day by a seizure. And I think it was my brother calling me and I have a speaker because I'm massage. I'm having a speaker.
5: And your are
3: massaging feet? I'm massaging Vell's feet. like, so how much did we lose? How much was it? I think it was like 10 or close to 10. And he's like, damn, that sucks. I'm like, go, oh, well, OK, well, let's see what happens just to keep me posting. I'm like, OK. You know, she's getting a massage. Like, her belly's big. And she's like, babe, did, did I just hear you say that you lost 10? What, like 10,000? I'm like, no, 10 million. And she can, you're fucking massaging my feet? I'm like, it's okay, babe, it's okay. Don't even worry about it. No, no, i think like, it's okay. That was life for us. And to us, it was just another day doing business. And you know hurt us more was the people we were losing. Those people that were our associates, that hurt us. But it was just, I guess, the business, right?
6: This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip
0: It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish.
8: Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe.
0: Mexico will likely have its first female president.
1: And then you have
8: China.
3: And we well, were kind of more by ourselves. Me and Val were by ourselves. And Val had actually will travel back to Chicago once a month for like a week to 10 days. It'll give me and Tommy, my best friend, a chance to kind of like just, we just hang out. I was watching TV and this documentary came out about John Gotti and the mafia. And I was translating it for Tommy, basically he's talking about the case. So I was translating it for him. It basically talked about Sammy the Bull's case and John Gotti, their history. And it just said that, you know, Sammy the Bull had received five years for 19 murders first corporation against John Gotti. And, you know, at that time, I mean, I already knew of the story, but this was kind of going in depth about details and how they kind of got to the point of the investigation. To us, it was like not a big deal, I guess, right? But I'm sure that for the 80s or for New York, or whatever, the times it was a big deal to them. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, you got five years for co against John Gotti. In my head, I was like, who the fuck is John Gotti?
5: John Gotti was the boss of the Gambino crime family in New York. He was known as one of the most dangerous and powerful crime bosses in the US. Gotti was the original Teflon Don. No one could get a conviction to stick until his right-hand man, Sammy the Bull, cooperated with the FBI to help put Gotti behind bars. Sammy the Bull confessed to 19 murders, but received a five-year prison sentence because of his cooperation.
3: The people we were dealing with, I felt like was living John Gotti's whole life, each day. Kind of left this like, imprint in me like, wow. It was an idea. I'm saying this today because I do recall that moment. I want to tell you that I kind of thought about it. Maybe not cooperating, but the difference between John Gotti, who was John Gotti to the mob, and who was Chapo to the world, I guess. Or who was Maya Sambada to the world. You kind of weigh those things. John Gotti was, oh, he was such an important criminal figure in New York City. Whereas Chapo was world-wide, drug-king, Yeah, I mean, I think there's 76 countries that the organization was in. I kind of left that thought in my head. I would get to bed late at times, and I was sleeping one day. I guess my mind would always be racing. I woke up in the middle of the night and I do call it an epiphany. It was this moment of just clarity. I could cooperate. And it came fast. I could cooperate. I could do some time, and I could just have a different life. I could get out. I could just leave this. I remember looking over about, like... Then it just hit me, like, brought me back to reality. Like, calm the fuck down. Hold on, hold on. You just said something really stupid. And I remember I always talked to God and I always said, like, this came to me for a reason. And I was try to think about other stupid decisions I made that I had thought about. And the reason why I was scared to talk about because she had this, you know, at that time she could have had hate at times and she did not like snitches. At all. Today she's a different woman think she's at peace at that time I guess just from her being in the business and her everything she's been through she didn't like et cetera and I knew how she felt so I felt I did feel like a, um a little bit less of a man just to even think about that but now I'm like sitting here like thinking would I tell her like how do I even know if this is a good idea if I can't even say it she was gonna be my filter. She was gonna be like, let me tell her first. Because at least I could trust her that she will be honest before I go tell my brother, who I knew was gonna be a problem. I woke up, I felt good. Just like energy. Not until like I came back to bed, like a little bit, I thought about what Val was gonna say, what Peter was gonna say. Or then you was
5: almost I, like talked to yourself that it was,
3: oh no, no, it's a stupid idea. Yeah, but I saw her and I just, I remember just seeing her seeing my son. He's in his crib. She's pregnant She's as pregnant well. She's pregnant at the time. I know this is the thing to do. But I'm always open to maybe run. Maybe someone could tell me something better. Just couldn't sleep after that. And I still remember throughout the day, like I felt like I was keeping something from her. The next night, she's sleeping, and I have to tell her. But I had planned to get her right in the middle while she's sleeping so she was calm. And I'm like, I could be ruining her sleep. She could be so mad, and then I'll oh, forget it. But right where she was calm, where she was going to hopefully just take it in, you know, the right way, I nudged her, you know, like, babe. Babe, because she, she was heavy sleep or something, i like, Babe, it off. She finally got away like, hey, like, what, what's wrong? I was like, I need a tattoo. What? I said, it's important. It's really important. She turned like, yeah, what's wrong? You know, I started off, like, I do this a lot. I want to tell you something. It's just an idea, but please don't be mad. Don't be mad, just think about it or just just don't be mad. Just tell me, respond to me in a nice way. Just tell me no, or just don't be upset. Could you just promise me you won't be upset? And she looks a little bit like nervous. She's thinking, what the hell did you do, right? She's like, nah. I'm like, I won't be mad, but tell me. You promise you're not gonna be upset. You're not gonna look at me a certain way. She's like, no, you could trust me. Tell me. And he said, you know how I promised you that would change my life? And she's like, yes. What if I told you I have the answer? And she's like, what do you mean? I said, what if I told you I had the answer of how I could change my life? but we could have a different life. And she's like, "Yeah, I'm lost. And I repeated, like, what if I told you I had the answer, but it was going to take some type of sacrifice, but we could have a different life for our kids? What would you say? I would say, let's do it, right? Just hold that thought. It would take a big sacrifice from you and me. Okay. I tell me, I said. I hope this doesn't change your relationship. She just no, it won't. Just let me know. And I said, What if we were to cooperate? And she gave that look. She said, What? My heart I mean, I'm nervous, like and I'm thinking like, was that a what? Like I didn't understand you because I could have just <laughs> been shy. I said, What if we cooperate? She said, like what do you mean? I said, like what if I can reach out to the feds and we cooperate? He was like, "You're crazy. Like, just what if? I'm like, what if we cooperate?" If Sammy the book had five years, who? <laughs> Sammy the book got five years. What if you we know, were to turn in Tapo or Maya one of them? I think we would have to do some prison time. But we'll have a chance to change her life. And she just stood there staring at me. And I'm coming up with this just at that moment. I didn't think about it that far. I'm just, the first basic was, I, I didn't expect her to be like, how or anything like that. And she's it's quiet and she's just staring at me. And then she just started crying. She said, do it. That's what you need to do, she said. But what are you going to do about your brother? I said, I'm going to have to do prison time. She's like, how long do you think? I said, I'm not sure. And she said, how much does Sam get? five years. She's like, oh, well, you would get less than that. And I'm like, well, I don't know. But I said, let's just be realistic. Say we get ten years and I'd have to do eight and a half for a good time. If I could get a couple programs, out, I'm being real positive, too, okay? I'd have to do like seven years. Seven years it'll take and we'll be out And she's like, seven years. I said, listen, your average parent goes to work. And I started to calculate, wrap my phone up. have a calculator on it. They work 40 hours a week. Starts doing this calculation. And I'm thinking they're averaging maybe spending four hours a day with their kid on the weekdays. And then, you know, on the weekends they have four days, you know, but they need time for themselves. Like, we're not that far off of the time we could spend with our kids in the process. And she's just like, 10 years? I'm just saying worst case. And she's like, do it. I was blinded by what I wanted to do. That it kept me, like, from seeing anything that I think would make me think twice or make me reconsider. I didn't think about the money. I didn't think about anything else but about changing my life. I do remember, like, me about talking about a little bit more. You know, when I think of something or I have an idea, and people who do know me, I get excited. I get, like, antsy. Like, I want to get to it. So I would, like, talk to Val about different things, you know, all day just... No matter what I was doing, I was, like, going back to that thought. And I did feel like, like, I felt really loved. I think that's what I was always looking for. In the way that I was receiving that love from Violet. I remember just, like, I would see her, I would look at her like I was happy. But then I'd be nervous thinking about my brother. I don't remember thinking about anything else, you know, I was just thinking about that. I was looking for a good time to tell my brother. Two days later, I wanted to, it was within that week or so. We're gonna go to a a business meeting. You know, we're talking, I said, hey Peter, I need to talk to you about something. But you can't be mad. What do you mean you can? I said, I wanna say something. I want to just give you an idea, but if you don't like it, just just don't be mad, you know, just hear me out. He's like, all right, tell me. I said, you're not gonna be mad, and he always like gets mad at that. (laughs) Just fucking tell me. What the fuck did you do? I said, no, listen, this is an idea. All right, tell me. I was nervous. I was really nervous. My heart is like, I feel like it's shrinking, like, and I'm like, we know what's coming. I think we have a chance. Like, we could get out this life. And he like, oh, how? How is that? Don't be mad. He's like, fucking tell me ready. And what if we were to cooperate? He said, what? I said, what if we were to Cooperate. I couldn't even finish saying the last word when he was like, you stupid motherfucker just started screaming, yelling and and I'm like, yo, calm down like, you little dumb motherfucker like we just end up just we're too close to each other, we started to get physical started kind of throwing each other, like you stupid fuck, you know, like literally throwing each other against the wall, like you dumb motherfucker, don't you fucking ever say that again, you stupid fuck everything you could think of. And I just took it. I I felt defeated. I went from still being nervous, but think about it. I felt like I had just invented something new, right? Like my invention, and someone just says, it sucks, right? Like I felt defeated. I wasn't even mad. Like I felt like I was letting him, let his anger come on. And I remember I just kind of like stepped away. I'm like, yo, just calm down. All right just chill and he was just like look at me mad like you stupid ass like everything you could think of him. and um i did feel really defeated i do remember feeling like why does he get that decision because at that time i was like always coming up with different ideas and but then i said well oh, I argued with myself, well, he's right. We did make the decision together to come in, so it, it hurt. It couldn't hurt me. A couple of days passed by. I remember telling him, look, Jay, we're making millions of dollars a month. Everything's going good. Don't fuck this up. All
8: right.
3: I could tell that he. He already. Tana was already making him up his mind and what was bothering me about my brother is that what was his mindset at, where he was making that decision knowing right. that could affect everything, everything else everything else like, that was the main issue that was bothering me when I wanted to choke him up be like bro <laughs> what are you doing me. listen to what you're willing to what like you this understand. <laughs> and I said, not only that I said the sad part is that we look alike
7: I want to punch your no. face but it looks like mine no no, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no. He has a valid
3: reason. He has a valid reason. Valid, valid. He has a valid. We look alike. They don't know who's who. Right. They yeah. Right. Two. Yeah. They don't know. Who but basically, no matter what, they didn't see us as two. They saw us as one. Yeah. And what was I thinking? It, it's kind of like, in having my brother as. You know, as my overprotective brother, of course, and then having him as a business partner. And we're so intertwined to our life, with each other. And in so many ways, obviously we're twins, but I just feel a little bit like, wow, I can't even make the decision for my family. We're a package deal. Regardless if we don't agree on many things, in a big decision like that, we have to agree. It has to work for both of us. That was it. We didn't talk about it. We act like it didn't happen. I could tell he still had this, like, little anger. And I went to tell you, maybe a week, 10 days later, 12 days later. It was a while. My phone rang one day, It's like a weekday, late at night. It's like 2 in the morning. And I'm like, hello. and it was silent. Hello, and he's just like... How would we do it?
5: Surviving El Chapo, the twins who brought down a drug lord, is hosted by Curtis 50 Cent Jackson and me, Charlie Webster. Our producers are myself alongside Jackson McLennan, Research and editorial support is from Casey Hertz. Edit and sound design by Nico Palella. Original score by Ryan Sorensen. Executive produced by Curtis 50 Cent Jackson and myself, Charlie Webster. If you'd like to know more about this story, head over to Lionsgatesound.com. Curtis 50 Cent Jackson presents a Lionsgate sound and G-Unit audio production exclusively for iHeart Podcast. If you have any information that could lead to the arrest of El Mencho, email MenchoTips at USDOJ.gov or you can hit up at DEA Los Angeles on Twitter.
1: The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world.
2: I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.